welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And we have just come through Advent and we've come through Christmas. And as I mentioned just a second ago, today is actually the last day in Christmas tide, which is this feast that follows our celebration of Christmas. And the end of 2019 was super exciting for us. We had full Christmas Eve celebrations on both sides of the city. And more importantly, we successfully raised an extra $50,000 for those in need. That's for scholarships for new moms or for young moms, uh, Christmas hampers for many people in various neighborhoods, our refugee resettlement and our benevolent care initiatives. And of course, this is all made possible because of the generosity of so many of you in this community. So thank you for that again. And as we look to the year ahead, to new patterns and habits perhaps, if generosity and investment are something that you've sort of set a goal for, for yourself this year, then I would love to ask you to think about setting up recurring donations if that works for you in your budget. Now, you can set this up and you can manage and you can edit it directly from our website at commons.church. And automatic donations happen to be a great way for you to plan your generosity, as many of you know this, but some people don't realize that it's super helpful for us as a community as we budget and we plan as we forecast for the coming year, which I will note just quickly that our annual general meeting is coming up on March the 11th, and our 2020 budget is going to be presented there along with all of our 2019 financials. And this is actually a review year for us, so everything's going to be sent out this year to a third-party accounting firm and then be back and ready for us for the AGM, which everybody's actually welcome to come to that meeting. All of the documents for it are going to be posted online. And if you would like to come and vote and help in the choices that are being made that night, our first steps classes are going to be running here next month in Inglewood, as we've noted. And the membership class actually happens to be the fourth in that series. We'd love for you, if you're coming into our community, if you're interested in commitment and getting involved, then this is actually a really important step that you can take so that you can be involved in our AGM. Everybody's welcome to attend, but it's our members that sort of make some of those decisions. So please consider that if you're sort of leaning into us as a community this year. Now, We hope that everybody had a wonderful New Year's and in the words of a terrible Instagram caption that your problems last only as long as your resolutions. Right? It's terrible. It's terrible. All kidding aside, uh, this new year is actually here and with it a new decade, which might spark more reflection for some of us than usual. Now, and some of you may not know this, but I'm actually turning 40 this year, and I'm one of the lucky ones then who is approaching 20 years lived in my second millennia, having spent my first 20 in a different one. And that perfect symmetry is actually something that I'm aware of, especially because of how it comes to us. And from this point on, I'm actually more a child of the 2000s than the 1000s. And this is a time of year when many of us find ourselves looking back and looking ahead for perspective, and you're going to see me here carefully avoiding the already overused 2020 vision pun, but actually one of the things that we mark here today in Inglewood is the fact that this is too years of gathering and growing for us as a community. So it's our birthday of sorts, which is kind of fun and exciting, right? Is it fun and exciting? At least for some of us. (laughs) 
Yeah, some groans. Some of us don't want to get old. That's fine. Sometimes it seems like it's just a few weeks ago that our team started to come together and we were looking for locations and we were scouting neighborhoods and we talked with excitement about this vision of becoming a network of parishes in the heart of this city. But all I have to do is think about the moments that we have shared together at the table. The times that we have met in home group conversations, how some of you have children today that you didn't when we started, how connections and partnerships have started here in Inglewood as we reach out into the neighborhood, how pancakes breakfasts have happened, after school playground sessions and pub chats, and how so many of you have joined us along the way as we've been on this journey. It's been great, but one of the things that I want to say especially today is how grateful I am to serve with so many of you. Because, I don't know if you know this, but it doesn't matter what you try to start or what you try to build in the world. It takes work. And that is not lost on me. How so many of you give of your time and your energy and your resources. You spend your weekends coming and participating in our liturgy. You teach kids. You stand at the door. You run screens. You set up. You tear down. You build community week by week, conversation by conversation. And I stand in awe of all of that. How the image of God comes alive in it as we speak of Jesus and try to be like Jesus, trying to make the world a little bit more like he said it could be. So thank you for that, and I hope you'll join us for the road ahead because there are so many ways that we can grow and stretch together. And yes, that is partly a reference to how after the service today we're going to have some cake for everybody. So please take a moment to hang around. (laughs) Was that a groan? (laughs) Why do we even do these things? Well, we're having cake, and I invite you to join us for some celebratory conscience-free calories, especially today, okay? Now, with all of that said, let's take a moment to pray a prayer of thanks, and then we're going to jump into this new series together. Join me now. God, with us, the light that guides our feet, the path that carries us along it, Today, we pause at the beginning of a new year, and however we come to this moment, maybe with optimism, with expectation, perhaps with some anxiety about or resistance to what we sense 2020 is going to bring to us, with all of these postures, we come and we confess our need and our humble hope that you will be with us along the way. Today we also pause and we offer thanks for the sacrament of community, for how it comes to us and how it brings us beyond ourselves, how it holds us in our weakness, how it reminds us that this project of renewing all things really does start in the simplest of places. For the kindness we've received as we have faced one another, we give thanks. And for the hope of relationships and homes and communities made new in this city and beyond, we give thanks. Be with us now, we ask. Amen. All right, so today we are beginning a new series together, and as we often do at the beginning of each year, we're going to jump into a conversation that we as a teaching team shape based on our conversations with so many of you. 
See, we actually always hope that our teaching here at Commons is intellectually engaged and honest, but we do more than read books and nerd out on Bible stuff to come up with content. We pay attention to the kinds of things that are pressing in so many of your lives, which is why, from time to time, we take a bit more of a thematic approach. And instead of working our way through a book or through a passage of scripture, which is our sort of steady diet, we take an idea and we carry it. And we come to the scriptures with that idea and we see what comes to light as we do, which brings us to swipe right. More on that in a second. See, because writer and minister Eugene Peterson once wrote that being a pastor means that people generally talk to you about two things, how to be in relationship with God and how to be in relationship with people. Actually, Peterson was a bit more direct. He said that pastors generally talk to people about prayer and about sex, which I will just say you don't need to feel any pressure to talk to me about next time we're having coffee. Seriously, I'm happy to talk about all kinds of things like YouTube and careers and even impeachment if you're really interested in that. But I kind of get what Peterson was talking about because I do talk with people about intimacy with God and with others, as many of us do on the team here at Commons, which is why we felt we should start the year by talking about what it means to form good, meaningful, rewarding connections, and thinking deeply about what it means to be human beings with brains, and with souls, and with bodies, and how to live with all three of these things as we try to integrate our spirituality and our sexuality. Which brings us back to the series title, one that I realize needs some explanation for some of us here. See, because the world we live in is a little different and it operates on different patterns than it used to. We're actually only about a hundred years from romantic relationships not actually being a thing in the world. Almost all marriages were arranged and put together in almost all cultures around the world because women were seen widely as, and treated widely as property. So fast forward to 2020 where people, some of you perhaps, can use a phone and create a profile on dating apps like Tinder that offer individuals a steady stream of photos from others' profiles, each of them a prospective connection. And all you gotta do is swipe right on the screen to let that person know that you're interested. And let's be honest, Swiping right is not any more superficial than a look across the room or a nervous phone call or dancing the night away with a stranger or whatever awkward thing you did in the past to connect with somebody you were interested in. But a recent Harvard study found that for some people, swiping was replacing physical connections with actual people with some saying that despite significant efforts, they were having little success in their connection making and in their dating. And when asked what they were doing, they claimed that they were spending hours on Tinder every day. Just swipe, swipe, swiping away. And what that means is that swiping right is more than a current social media practice. It's just the most recent example of our longing for meaningful connection and how we sometimes try to take a shortcut and reduce and avoid the work that these things actually take. And that means that this conversation we're having today, it applies to everybody in the room, whether you're on Tinder or not, whether you know what Tinder is or not, anyone, literally anyone who's curious about looking for, working on, or living in a relationship. I think that covers all of us. Now. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to explore some of what it means to do this work. 
thinking about the role that our hearts and our souls play as we come alive and as we risk and we wound and then we try again. And how we are, in fact, beings with bodies and how we're supposed to use them to build intimacy with others. But today, we're diving into this idea of how we think about our most significant connections. And we need to do that because, yes, at Commons, we do our best to be thoughtful. And as a Christian community, we use the scriptures to help guide us in this mindful work, especially because of how they reveal God in Christ to us. The challenge, though, is that, well, the stories and the texts of Scripture that we use, they aren't always clear on what the best models and practices are for us as spiritual and sexual beings. So often, quite frankly, they don't seem to be all that concerned with telling us what the rules are. And by this I mean that, yes, the Hebrew Scriptures do begin with the story of a man and a woman and how their relationship is a model for a kind of singularity or monogamy and oneness. But then very quickly, the ancient heroes of this Hebrew story are often seen having multiple partners, like literally all of the patriarchs do this. And many of the main characters have illicit sexual encounters, like this guy named Judah, who has one of these things with a prostitute, who just also happens to be his daughter-in-law. This stuff is actually in the Bible, guys. And if you fast forward, you come to King David, who commits murder so that he can have somebody else's wife, a woman he's already slept with, coincidentally. And by the time you get to the Christian scriptures, where at one point, Jesus tells his followers that they need to reject their parents and reject their partners, And then a little later, this guy named the Apostle Paul tells his friends that he really wished they were all like him, celibate and single. You would be hard-pressed to say that the scriptures have a uniform ethic when it comes to human sexuality. Especially because if you go back through each of the examples I just offered you, you're going to note that the divine story advanced and came to life in the middle of all of those different stories. God revealed to Abraham this husband to multiple wives. Yes, God was revealed and a divine covenant was made with Abraham to redeem and restore all creation. Judah sleeping with a prostitute. But don't forget that that woman's name is Tamar and her story is one of power and justice and finding voice and her name is in the lineage of Jesus. King David, for all of his foibles, saw his family grow and continue through the marriage that he came to through adultery and murder, and his wife, named Bathsheba, mothered and ruled her way into the narrative of God's redemptive story. And then, of course, you have Jesus giving his instructions to young people who would ultimately remember and tell the story of God with us. And Paul, well, yes, he sometimes seems a little bit off on some of his really strict prescriptions, but you cannot doubt his hope that all would come to see Jesus as he had. Which is all to say that as we come to ancient texts to find wisdom and insight for how to live, we need to learn to read redemptively. I mean, it seems like that's what the text is teaching us across the entire catalog. Where time and time again, God doesn't seem so fixated on making it clear what sexual practices are taboo. The 
point of the stories isn't even to know what code to follow or what morals to practice. The overwhelming point seems to be that God works with us step by step to flesh out the story. And that's one way to read an ancient text for sure. Back to this in a moment, but I imagine that this is something that you might need to interpret your own story too. Whether you're coming to grips with a mistake you made or a betrayal that you suffered perhaps a long time ago or maybe there's a relationship that you let go and you still haven't come to grips with how you wished you hadn't done that. And then there's the host of ways that we build a history marked on or marked by loneliness and marked by shame and longing for something that we don't always have words for whether we're single or we're in a relationship, whatever. Where Whatever our relationship status, you might say your search for love has led you off of the marked trails and conventions that people seem to think are right, or appropriate, or best. Or that in some way that you aren't where you thought you'd be. Or that this love, that it's not what you thought it would be. And where it might be easy to try and turn your life into a how not to manual, and evaluate yourself super harshly and mark yourself as somehow disqualified, let me quietly suggest that the scriptures that we look at today, the scriptures that we hold close to us today, they don't tell a story like that. No. Time and time again, they illustrate how the good and the redemptive strain in the universe has a way of weaving itself into the realities of actual life. Not just in ancient lives at that. Perhaps so with yours and mine, where our stories are full of redemptive promise too. Now, what happens when we adopt this kind of a lens and we allow it to begin to shape how we think about human sexuality and intimacy and our experience is that we find that we need to look below the surface of many biblical texts where if we want to access the wisdom that's there for us to hold as we live, we have to move beyond the simple conclusion that the Bible talks about sex or talks about sexual ethics. And I want to give you a couple of examples of this before we go today. And the first comes from a piece of literature that some of you might be familiar with. It's called the Song of Songs. And basically, if you aren't familiar, this is a collection of ancient songs or poems that are part of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew Bible. Which is pretty cool, I think, right? This idea that erotic poetry and description of human sexuality might be meant to lead us into wise living. Anyway, the, the poems themselves generally map the relationship of a young woman and her love interest, who happens to be a young man, and their descriptions of each other are included, and their descriptions of their encounters with each other are there too. For example, in chapter 4, the young man describes his lover. How beautiful you are, my darling. Your hair is like a flock of goats. And at that point, we aren't really sure where he's going with his pickup lines, but we're going to follow along. He continues. He says, your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your neck is like the Tower of David. Your breasts are like two fawns. And like a slow panning shot in a film, we're actually following his gaze downward. 
And he is on a roll. He keeps going as he says, until the day breaks and shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense, at which point some of you are begging me to stop reading because you don't have to be an English major to understand what's going on here. And to be honest, his frank description of his lover's genitals and his intentions aren't usually the stuff we talk about in sermons. Now, to be clear, the following chapter sees this young woman describe her lover's body, how he is altogether lovely, and this reference she makes in verse 14 to part of his body resembling polished ivory is seen by both conservative and more progressive scholars as an obvious reference to male genitals. And this mutuality where both partners participate in this description of each other and their enjoyment, this is something that scholars think is really important. Where this text doesn't follow some of the patriarchal patterns of other ancient texts, where female bodies are just objectified and commodified, but rather there is a clear representation of mutual pleasure and delight and celebration in human sexuality here. And it would be easy to read this text as an endorsement of sexual exploration and experience, but there is something more going on here. See, because there's this interesting little reference later in the poem, whereas the young man describes his lover again, he says, 60 queens there might be, and 80 concubines, and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The young women see her and call her blessed. The queens and the concubines praised her. Now what's interesting is that some scholars see this as a not so subtle critique of the ancient King Solomon's harem, which is rumored to have included 700 wives and 300 concubines, where the ancient poet here in a different culture and time than our own is pointing towards a higher ethic than merely the glorification of sex the beauty of our bodies, and the primacy of pleasure. Those are all good things, the poet says. But they aren't at their best if they're just blindly pursued, and blindly collected, and blindly hoarded, or frivolously engaged in with no consideration for ourselves, or for those that we're intimate with. No, the poet says, in the words of the young man, he says, there might be innumerable ways for us to pursue and find pleasure, but these, they pale in the face of this mutual love I've found. In the face of committed partnership, whatever that might look like. Now, that's a bit of a racy example. We're going to cover another one before we go today. And for this one, we go to the story and life of Jesus. Where, in Matthew 19, we find Jesus caught in this debate that's going on in his life and in his time about divorce. And the text says this, that some Pharisees, who were these religious rulers and teachers of Jewish law at the time, they came to Jesus to test him. And they said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, Jesus responds to this question by pointing back to the beginning of the Jewish story, Adam and Eve, how partnerships like that one are blessed by God and that we shouldn't break them. To which the Pharisees said, 
They actually quote the Bible to Jesus. It's brilliant. They say, well then, why did Moses say that a man could divorce and send his wife away? They think they've tricked Jesus here because, see, in ancient Mosaic law, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there was this stipulation included that if a man married a woman and she became displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, super vague, he was to write her a certificate of divorce and give it to her and send her away. And in Jewish law, this is actually pretty gracious. This meant that this woman was free to go and remarry and secure a life for herself as she pleased. The problem is, is that by the time of Jesus, there were two interpretations of this particular law that had developed. And they had formed into two schools that were started by two rabbis who lived just before Jesus was alive. And their names were Hillel and Shemai. And Shemai, he's the more conservative of the two. He believed that this law in Deuteronomy 24 implied that divorce should only ever be allowed in cases of unfaithfulness or of, in, or of significant immorality happening. Whereas Hillel, he has taken this law from Deuteronomy 24. He said, hey, Moses lets us do this. And you know what that means? This means that men have license to divorce their wives for offenses as indecent as burning the soup. For real, that's what he said. Sounds like a really great guy. So what we see is that in Matthew 19, these religious leaders are pulling Jesus into this debate of whether the law allows for divorce at all or if it lets men divorce their wives for ridiculous reasons. And what's interesting is how Jesus avoids the whole mess. See, on one hand, Jesus sides with the conservative school where he basically says, look, marriages are a big deal. These kinds of connections and commitments are full of divine character and you shouldn't break them unless one of the parties has already broken trust in really significant ways. And in this way, Jesus teaches us how to read the text, just like he was teaching his contemporaries to read their texts too. Jesus was saying, just because the text says you're allowed to do something doesn't mean that's what's best for you. Relationships are more than you taking opportunities that you think are yours. In their most rewarding form, they're often more about you taking responsibility for others. And this idea expands even more as this story continues because Jesus' disciples hear him saying these things and then they pose a question. They're saying, well, okay, if divorce is such a serious offense, then maybe it's just better if nobody gets married. And what's interesting is that Jesus kind of seems to take them up on this. He makes this cryptic statement about eunuchs, basically saying that in the world, there's gonna be people who won't marry and won't use sexual rights because they're just born that way. And there's gonna be some people who won't get married and they won't use sexual rights because they don't really want to because of some, or some significant circumstance that's happened in their life. And, Jesus says, there will be those who won't because they think that's what's best for them and for others. And in making these statements, Jesus walks this really profound line that calls us to see a deeper ethic when it comes to our expression as sexual beings and those pursuing serious relationships. See, because in response to the debates of his day, Jesus seems to have said, yeah, the text does give you the right to end your relationships. 
but don't do this quickly. And don't do it for superficial reasons. And yeah, some of you might look at what's happening in the world and what happens when committed relationships end and you might say to yourself, I don't want to have any part of that. And Jesus seems to be saying, okay, go ahead. You should probably live that way. But Jesus' openness has a not-so-subtle call behind it where his teaching gets at a truth that some of us might need. How so often we have a tendency to want to downplay boundaries and rules as a tool of our preference, as a means to get what we want. And how this often works against the kinds of commitment and care for others that are necessary to build the connections that we actually crave and desire. Yes, our most significant relationships are complicated, Jesus says. In fact, he admits this. And yes, you have the right to pursue connections that are pleasurable, Jesus says. Yes, you always have the right to choose what's best for you. But he calmly and carefully adds, don't ever treat each other like opportunities to be taken advantage of. And don't ever assume that everybody has to form intimate connections in the same way. Please, Jesus says, treat each other with care and honor the divine potential in your most intimate moments and take responsibility for those that you are closest to. And that is an ethic that we can all carry with us forward because regardless of whether we've been married for decades or you're at the height of your dating life, maybe you're single, maybe you're in a fulfilled and committed relationship, or perhaps you're actually exploring your sexuality and you're seeking wisdom and you're making choices about who you're going to be. These texts sometimes feel like they send us mixed messages when in fact, if you look under the surface, at their core, they teach us to trust God's faithful and persistent presence in all our living and in our search for pleasure and in our work to build committed partnerships and in our attempt to keep going when things don't go perfectly, ultimately teaching us to read redemptively and our lives in turn where ancient poetry calls us into the good things of our human experience, naming our beauty as sexual beings, but calling us beyond the mere pursuit of physical experience into committed places and spaces that hold us and heal us. And where Jesus simultaneously invites us to reimagine boundaries and to tend the right ones finding that as we do, we cultivate a life marked by hope and fulfillment and a steady calm that keeps us through it all. Let's pray together. God, we sense a need your help today because no matter who we are, no matter our past experience, no matter our current situation, we all need to shift in our thinking sometimes. I think probably away from some of the stories that we tell ourselves about the mistakes we've made and the wounds that we've received, the regrets that we have. 
And this is why it's so helpful to remember today the way your redemptive work happens. It happens in the midst of a life and in the midst of searching and in the midst of heartache that people like us just experience by virtue of being human. And this is why as we come to ancient stories that sometimes seem to send us mixed messages, we do open our hearts to sense again your quiet instruction to us that sometimes uh, we're not sure always what to do with, but we do want to be open to the ways that you invite us to true, holistic living. Where as we seek to honor ourselves and our own stories and we seek to honor those around us that we're seeking connections with, we find that you come into the middle of those attempts and it doesn't always go the way we planned. But we do want to sit in this moment and trust your great goodness to lead us in the moment that we're in today and in the moments to come. These things we confess as we go with you into the coming days and week. We pray in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.